Welcome, welcome to Essential Dynamics. I'm Reed McCollum, and I just have to turn down my guitar here. There we go. I'm Reed McCollum, your host, and uh, looking forward to talking about Essential Dynamics with business titan and uh, wonderful, uh, wonderful speaker, my friend Derek Hudson. Derek, how are you today? Hey, Reed, I'm doing great. And yes, I, I can speak. <laughs> my <laughs> mother great. taught me. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad. I haven't I, shut up since. So okay, go. that's good. Well, I knew your mother, and I I think she was a wise woman. So, uh, Derek, I want to talk again today about the individual and the group, if we could, uh, and how it relates to essential dynamics. Because I have have a question about how we relate. Let's put some of the principles in essential dynamics in a high school for for just the sake of argument. I think there's a lot of uh, resistance there and a lot of uh, opportunity for creativity. How do we resolve those things? Okay, so this is cool. You know, we've mentioned this before that you and I went to high school together. And our engineer, Bryn Griffiths. And junior high, as, uh, as did Bryn. Um, it's been a long time. But high school is, yeah, it's, what, what do they call it? It's a uh, crucible. Yeah, and uh, actually, in the we were just before we got on air, we were talking about. Uh, Bren was talking about one of the teachers that you guys had in, in drama, and he finally admitted, you know, forty years later that he wasn't teaching drama; he was teaching life. Um, high school is a really interesting time for that. Yeah, so, it sure is. In the context of, um, in the in the in the context of essential dynamics. Where, where I look at the individual is this natural tension between um, the individual's desire for being their own person and then our desire to connect with other people right? and, and be part of a group. And high school is that time, you know, when you got to find your group and you're also figuring out who you are. And there's a really interesting interplay between uh personal development, and then peer pressure. Yes. And, and, and you know, we all went, we went to Harry Ainley High School in, in Edmonton, Alberta. At the time, which, it was... Which just people not from Edmonton, hearing that name, that was my high school's name, Harry Ainley High School. It just, it sounds pretty funny. Well, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't <laughs> brand it anyway. You wouldn't, like, if you're branding a high school, that's not what you would use. No, no, yeah. Um, and anyway, we, we went to that high school. It was a big high school at the time. It's bigger now, one of the biggest in the city in terms of student population. And so when you come in in grade 10, uh, with a class of probably 750 grade 10 students, uh, you're not going to know everybody ever. You're not going to be friends with everybody. Um, in fact, my experience at our graduation, which Reed spoke at, by the way. Um, our, my experience at graduation is I walked, watched people walk across the stage that I swore I'd never seen before in my life. <laughs> it was segmented, and there were, it wasn't just one group of people. We encountered many groups of people so, that naturally segmented and, and uh, broke off into their own little groups. That, that was exactly my point. Because the school was so big, 
the, the idea was you had to find, you had to find your tribe. Yeah. In the school. And, and some people were, you know, multi-talented and they'd move from, from one to the other. Uh, but, you know, that was the way to survive in high school was to, to find your tribe. And I'll just, I'll just share a little bit of a secret then, um, that I think, you know, we, we talked earlier about parents and, and their goals with their children. Um, I'm pretty sure that my parents were very wise in saying, uh, we want to have a strong influence on the friends that our kids have. Oh. And so the, uh, the investment that my parents made uh, into to that outcome was uh, money and food. In yes, fact, I remember. They they paid me to be your friend, Derek. Right. I'm not sure you knew that. Money turned into food. And, of course, um, our, my house was close to the junior high, so that's where, you know, the people would, kids would come and eat at my house. Yes. <clears throat> so I had a group of friends going in um, to high school that my parents had cultivated by who they fed, I think. I don't know. Where <laughs> uh-huh. but, but, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a big, important uh, decision to kind of pick your tribe in high school. I'm uh, interested, Derek. Did you, did you do the same thing with your kids? Uh, you know, we had uh, our, our starter home um, wasn't very far from uh, Vernon Barford Junior High, which is a... Okay. Excellent school, academic challenge there, stuff like that. And so we thought that would be great if we live close to junior high because junior high kids are less mobile, so we'll see more of their friends. Ah. And then we had uh, we had number four, um, a little bit later than our three girls, and we were looking for a different house. But number one criteria is it can't be too far away from Vernon Barker. Ah. ah. So that we could, uh, you know. Absolutely. So they would maintain their same their same connections. Well, just so, just so you know, we yeah, we'd have a connection to their friends, and you know, and it was, you know, good school and stuff like that. And you know, they all made great choices with their friends. Although I remember one of my daughters, wholesale change in um, high school. Oh, really? Yeah, like it wasn't the group turned out. You know, grade nine girls or maybe, you know, I don't know. That's when they start to <laughs> express themselves in different ways, and and uh, she she uh, went to a different high school than they did, and tracked into a different group, and it was it was you know very positive development in her life. Great. Great. So um, anyway, the, the you know your question in my mind, one of the the interesting things is all of us have to decide who we are as people, and in high school, a lot of ways you define that is what groups you're in. Yes. Um, and that can be really positive, but it also can be negative. Of course. Because if you're in a group that, you know, doesn't have either high standards or doesn't have, you know, values that, that really represent deep down who you are, then you get, you get a little bit of turmoil and, you know, teen angst and all that kind of stuff. There's, it's a real thing because, you know, we're not, necessarily ready to figure out who we are as as people and uh, so the influence of the group is so so tremendous yes the influence of the group will be in high school is frequently uh 
so tremendous that it is long-lasting, even if you're not in touch with those same people. I ran with the greasers and the crime breakers, and uh, so it took me a long time and a, a, a fairly lengthy, lengthy uh, prison stay to actually change my life and become the good person that I am now. And that's, it. that's all reflected in your novel, right? <laughs> so, uh, let's, let's go beyond high school then. Let's, uh, let's look, what about, uh, how do you, how do we balance conformance and create with creativity, uh, and, and creativity with the knowledge that workers have, uh, how do dynamic forces show up with the people part of essential dynamics? So, you know, if we, if we talk about a company, you know, uh, an organization, and I talked about it a little bit, maybe even just last episode, where organization is figuring out a way to do stuff. Yeah. And, and, and in our model, that's the path. So there's value in standardizing steps along the path. In fact, hey, here's a cool analogy I haven't used before. Um, this winter, I took up cross-country skiing. And oh. uh, we got a dump of snow in November. I, uh, my skis showed up just a couple days before that. I was out on the, the trails or the boulevards just around my house. Yes. And you can do a 5K ski in, uh, you know, first thing in the morning. You feel great. But one of the things I found is because I was – out early in the season and early in the morning, uh, there were no tracks. Oh, so, so you were making them. So I was making the tracks, and when the snow is deep, that's hard work, and you don't really feel that there's no glide. You don't feel like you're really um, getting you know, anywhere. Yeah. Really getting anywhere. But I would go out for a ways, and then I turn around and come back, and the second time back was like it was like three times better than the first time because then there were I would, tracks made. And then I would turn around and go over those tracks again. Oh. And so cross-country skiing, as I've, as I've learned, is, you know, everyone wants to know what condition the tracks are in. Ah. Um, and at the various, uh, you know, golf courses and parks and stuff like that where tracks are set, uh, when the tracks are set well, it's a, it's a fun experience. Sure. And so, I, you know, I've had that experience hiking as well, like hiking on an established path especially if it contours up the mountain nicely, you know, that's great. But sometimes we want to go off the path. And that's and where you so, get into trouble? Well, but it's fun too. So yeah, today, so last week, yes, I got, I went off the tracks and got into trouble and wiped out and I'm hobbling around with the pulled hamstring now. Um, but if I go back to my experience this past summer, uh, for the first time in the Rockies, I went on a, uh, 50 kilometer hike that didn't have a trail. No trail. No and trail. Never... We, had, we had GPS points. I see. And we knew the like, the route. Uh, but but in terms of actually choosing, you know, the, close to the creek, far away from the creek, um, by the rocks, through the forest, that was all choices that we had to make. It was super fun, but you you know, progress is slow. So and it's not. It wasn't dangerous? Well, look at me. I'm talking dangerous. Uh, I'm not an experienced hiker except for what we did as kids. And uh, you talk about getting up in the morning and having a, having a 5K skiing run. I'm sure that sounds fun to you. Uh, I 
I, of course, have a lifestyle of, you know, getting up at the crack of 10 and being done in time for Judge Judy. So your, uh, <laughs> your lifestyle may be different than mine. <laughs> well, it's pretty, pretty similar these days now that I'm trying to get my leg back in shape. But yeah. Um, so, so anyway, to, to make the point, uh, there's a lot of value in having established paths in our lives. And in an or if an organization has figured out how to make a great omelet, um, and people come into the restaurant in the morning expecting that great omelet, you really kind of have to follow the recipe. You have to do it the same you did you before. Have to do it the same way because that's what people expect. Yeah, that's true. So, so that's, that's the true. standardization part. Um, one of the risks of standardization is that driving out creativity. Yeah. Um, Bryn, Bryn, um, we were talking earlier about a colleague who, uh, has been in the broadcasting business for years and, and Bryn just said, well, he's a good guy, but he's old school. Uh-huh. And, uh, the problem is, is that sometimes the old school is so old, it's not relevant anymore. Yes, but there also, you, there's a corollary to that. And that is the old school took so long to learn, uh, I'm reluctant to divert from that path because I just got the, the hang of the old school method. Sure. You know, absolutely. So, so, you know, in this concept of essential dynamics where the path is, you know, part of the system, um, there, you have to have a balance between it's easy to walk on the old path. It's efficient to walk on the old path. Uh, but the old path might not lead you in the right direction. And so that, that's that tension. So what, you know, where I saw it at, at Microline, um, so this is a highly creative technical environment. People are figuring out how to do stuff at a microscopic scale that hasn't ever been done before. And we have these really agile creative minds trying this, that, and whatever to get this thing figured out. So they figure out how to make this tiny device on a silicon wafer. Um, and, uh, if, if they, um, you know, they'll hold their tongue just right. Um, and if the moon's in the right phase, then they can produce this product and it's amazing what it does. And then our customer says, that's great. Thank you very much. I'll take a thousand a week. Right. Now, how do you and, produce that if it was magic the first time? Yeah. And, and so that's, that's the creative, uh, tension is, you know, standardization is great. But we also need this novelty and we need this, this creativity. So, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to bounce it back because, uh, I really like this theater business parallel that we're developing here. Well, you're talking about the individual and the group and I'm thinking the individual isn't always reliable. I think of the dog in the animated movie Up, which, who was, uh, who stowed away with the old man as, a, as he ballooned into the sky and, the dog uh, would be a reliable companion on the path until he saw a squirrel. Squirrel! And then he'd be completely distracted. And I think people are like that. I, at least people I've worked with, including myself. And uh, as soon as we find something that is that overrides our, our commitment to you, oh, we've got to talk about that right now. And... Uh, Therefore, my productivity to you as my business manager may not be as strong. 
so I think that, um, you know, a great business environment, uh, you know, does two things. And, you know, this is the dynamics of, you know, the, the model that we're talking about. Wonder, one is that it standardizes on all the best way of doing things. And then the other is it has ways to bring improvements into that process. And if that's ineffective, at some point you blow it up and start over again. If you are successful in making the product in one way, however, it's going to be very difficult to, the more successful you are in making that product in that way, it's going to be very difficult to change that way or improve it. Hey, I, hey Reed, this, that's a, thank you for saying that. That's fantastic. I know we don't have a lot of time left, but there's a, there's a book that I haven't referred to yet. It's one of my top five business books of all time called The Innovator's Dilemma huh? by Clayton Christensen. And he goes beyond what you said, which is, the company has a business model, you know, established on the old way. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you've learned how to make um, VCRs. Right. With and, it doesn't, yeah. Yeah, and you're really, really good at it. And now you have to change because VCRs aren't a thing. Right, but and they're, they're obsolete. But what do you do? Your entire business model is set up on the old product the old way. And so that's, it's a dilemma because you, you're still making money doing it. Right. I think of Kodak, who for years, in, in our generation, for years were the reliable film company. And uh, then now that pictures can be taken on your camera digitally, it, it very nearly put them right out of business. Hey, hey, I have personal experience with that. Because when I was at Microline, Kodak bought our biggest customer. Oh, and it was an effort to try and diversify beyond, you know, film um, into this is a digital. This is a digital imaging product. Uh, but meanwhile, their their business is just getting hammered. And so right. I remember this one meeting where the new guy comes from New York, and uh, he's going to tell us how it's all going to get better. And guess what? How it was all going to get better is that we were going to do way more for them for less money. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because because their business was based on uh, you know a dying industry, right? Which they saw coming, but based on the innovators' dilemma, they couldn't do anything about. Um, that's so, a tough thing. Here in Alberta, we have an oil industry that is uh, that is struggling to maintain relevance in a time of lowering or even bottoming uh, oil prices. Do we find uh, a better way to produce the oil, or do we find a better, uh, a better, I don't know, way of living? All, all of that. So here we are. Um, we've spent our time talking today, and we've just unearthed a really cool new subject, which we're going to have to talk about. We're going to have to talk about. So I, I just want to recap on the old part. Okay. And then maybe we can set up the new part. So, the, so originally what we were talking about is that you, you need to conform and standardize, follow the path. It's more efficient and you get better product. You get more predictable product. But you also need to innovate and create. Yeah. And uh, so a way to do that within the system is 
okay, we're going to lock down how we do this and have a team trying to figure out how the version two looks. Right. And then we're going to interject and bring version two into the mix. Um, and everyone has to learn how to upgrade their, their particular part of the operation or change the recipe so we can get a better result. Oh, there's lots to, there's lots to, to feast on there. Let's do it in our next uh, podcast, Derek. The, that's version two we'll save for then. But uh, I so enjoy talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? So two ways. One is they can find me on the web at DerekHudson.ca. Great. And the second is, and that's just because of where, where we started this episode, they could walk down the main hallway at Harry Ainley <laughs> and find all of us in the 1978 photo in the what my kids call the Hall of Shame. In the Hall of Shame, yes. That's, that's how I feel about it, too. But nonetheless, I so enjoy talking with you, Derek Hudson, and uh, thank you very much for your time. And thank you to our engineer, Bryn Griffiths, who does this marvelous uh, uh, engineering for us. And until next time, Consider your path.